Hi, Dan. How are you? Hello. I'm very well, thank you. Yeah, good to be here. Oh, thank you. I was just going to give people a minute to um, to join because um, I think it I think it kind of always pops up live and people are like, oh, and uh, take them, give them a second to get their bearings. So would you mind um, introducing yourself? Yeah. OK, so it's how to how to to encapsulate the story of Dr. Dan O'Brien. <laughs> I'm I'm an 18th century historian of death which means that I'm primarily interested in death-related themes, predominantly undertaking, but also a bit of burial, a bit of sort of memorialization as well, to a limited extent, um, but mostly within the 18th century. And I've, I've found that that's kind of my niche, really, the long 18th century of the 1680s through to the 1820s. Um, and I do lots of research into the undertaking trade and kind of thinking about how it came to be, what it looked like and how it was composed. And then also quite recently, I've started to look at, uh, in rather more detail, at how it was presented both by the members of the trade and also people who weren't members of the trade. So it's kind of looking okay. at takers from all different angles. Yeah. Okay, so I can't wait to get stuck in, dig in, I was going to say, and then thought that might not be, that might be <laughs> the wrong expression to use when talking about funerals and undertaking. Um, uh, Susie Lennox would approve. Um, I just wanted to, I can see that we've got um, a few people watching now. So I just want to say, if you want to comment, um, please feel free um, to comment with questions or just to comment generally. Um, if you're on Facebook watching, you might need to press um, the link that appears in the post to allow StreamYard to see your profile, um, or you can ignore it and just post anonymous, anonymously. It's just that I won't be able to see your name. Um, okay, so undertakers when when you say about um the development of undertakers it it kind of took me back for a second because i kind of thought oh yes that's something i just kind of presumed had always been there but actually probably wasn't so i just wondered whether you could tell me a bit about when when what i'm gonna say what is an undertaker is there a kind of set definition for that and also um when do undertakers start to appear so the idea of a definition of an undertaker is an interesting thing because people start to use that word to describe their services in the late 1600s. And it's a time when people are shifting, particularly people at the elite level of society. So people who have lots of sort of status and wealth are moving away from the traditional structures of organising funerals, of going to the Royal College of Arms, the heralds, and having the heralds sort of dictate that you can have this many things and that many things and you can have so many banners or heraldic devices things that would seem like decorations to us um, and these people who are the early undertakers they they come about primarily within london and then also gradually within the larger urban centers from the sort of late 1600s uh, into the the early 18th century and they are primarily people who've chosen to use the word undertaker to describe the fact that they can provide for and organize a funeral. So they are essentially undertaking a funeral. Um, so in some ways it's quite a mundane term, um, but its appearance is interesting because it, as I would see it, it marks a, a shift from people who would provide funerary goods within a community as um, part of their everyday trade to people who want to be seen to be sort of providing all that's respectable and all that's required for a funeral. Um, okay. So you, you mentioned there about um, uh, heraldry. Were, were there kind of set rules as to what you could mm -hmm. do within a funeral then? So at the elite funerals, um, that were taken uh, under the charge of the, the College of Arms. There were very, very strict rules. And that was one of the things that led to a degree of upset because the expense of those funerals could be horrendous. <laughs> and, and even people of, of great wealth and great status didn't like the idea of paying so much. So they become, if you like, the first um, potential customers for the undertakers. And customers are really important because undertaking is in its earliest forms, a primarily, almost entirely profit-driven enterprise. It only exists where there's a demand to serve it. And in the earliest years, that demand lies with people who are members of the elites who previously were being told that, you know, you can't have these items at your funeral because they're not um, 
they're not appropriate for your status if you like um, with an undertaker the undertaker can provide whatever you want them to provide so you can start having things that are a bit above your station but you might like you might want them so um yeah under the heralds there's there's a lot of there are a lot of rules um as from from my perspective sometimes it's an almost befuddling amount of rules to do with the number people the numbers of uh flags that you can use different kinds of like flags and, and various symbols like escutcheons and little devices that maybe have a coat of arms on them and all of those things are very meaningful and very important components of a display that is sort of geared towards that person's station in society but at the same time also sort of constrains those people to having what is appropriate for their level so in a way the under if we're viewing the undertakers in a really positive way they allow people to break away from that and go to something different um, and most of those early undertakers particularly the ones in london have some contact with those heralds in the first instance so they are maybe providing services for them uh, they might be making coffins they might be making wax candles for the the funeral they might be providing other uh, material for the decorative devices or the flags um, they might be painting uh, heraldic items so you know the role of herald painter um, is the starting point for several undertakers um, so essentially these guys are, are entrepreneurs of a sort yeah i was going to say so the 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 people that become the undertakers it sounds like they would be of more of a a lower class or a lower status than the um the people that they're actually um providing mm. the service for and also for the her heraldry i always struggle to say that word <laughs> uh organization so yeah, that's interesting i i had heard that um a lot of undertakers were originally um carpenters and that they'd, mm. they'd gone into the job through providing coffins so is that that's got an element of accuracy to it i suppose oh, yeah okay you find in the earliest instances you find lots of carpenters upholsterers people who have um, knowledge and experience that's useful for the organization of those earlier funerals and they are people who maybe have the right tools the right knowledge the right know-how to essentially make that jump to to use the thing that they've got the skill that they've got to branch out into a new um, into a new sort of business path if you like and a lot of the way that they work in those early years is is quite supplementary so you might have someone who's a carpenter and an undertaker the majority of the undertakers i end up studying in the 18th century are supplementing an existing trade or maybe even several existing trades um, with undertaking and quite often they are undertakers and then their their other their more established trade will be a kind of trade that fed into um, the funeral business so you have carpenters carpenters who may have become coffin makers um, you have tin plate chasers whose skills are quite useful mm -hmm. for making coffin plates and they they branch into it as well um, glovers because gifting gloves at funerals is another very important custom so people would oh, give I've never heard of that gloves to people at funerals you you turn up at your funeral if you've been invited and you might receive a, a pair of gloves to wear um, that obviously means there's lots of work for glovers you know potentially with funerals um, and then you also get some people who are kind of in various different states of of specialization so you have some upholsterers whose skills allow them to branch out as auctioneers but they also become funeral directors uh, undertakers as well so you have people who have lots of different sort of very linked but very sometimes quite different trades that they work in so yeah carpenters and undertakers are a, are a perfect combination really. okay so and how how would you have gone about um uh, finding an undertaker so generally speaking, um, what makes the undertakers in the 18th century quite interesting is that you can find early examples of advertisements. And advertisements kind of, they're a good sign. They're, they're a bit like a sort of um, a canary in the mine, if you like. They show you that within a community there is competition. Because here we have a, a more complicated situation than simply being able to go to the local carpenter or the local ironmonger in some cases and 
order a funeral or to order the parts for a funeral. Here you have a community where maybe there are several different individuals who are undertakers and they're starting to compete for trade. So in quite a lot of smaller communities, you'll probably still be going to the same individual that everyone went to, maybe a local carpenter who over time has established himself as an undertaker, but has always been a trusted person that people went to. And that lasts in some communities that lasts well beyond the 18th century yeah um, um yeah. in fact by the end of the 18th century rural undertaking is not really very well established at all so in rural areas you'll probably find it's a it's a local individual who has an established knowledge who will be taking care of those things and the family will have to go to each different trade and sort of acquire the bits for a funeral themselves okay so oh, yeah so i was just going to ask um hmm what exactly did an undertaker do what was there so you've mm. talked about acquiring bits and, and kind of helping with some of those traditions but what would their kind of like end-to-end -end role be um so often what you will have is a situation where say for example if you've got a reasonably well-established undertaker um, it may be the case that they produce several items in their own premises and maybe have a stock of coffins, say, for example. But there may be items that they can't acquire. So those items are going to be sourced from a warehouse or another provider of goods. So you might have a warehouse or an individual who provides lots of different items. Um, so gloves, for example, scarves, hat bands, um, cloaks from people to wear during the funeral. And the way that they're sort of trading those items will depend on what sort of items they're providing for the funeral. So in some cases, you'll find that the undertaker is going or rather is encountering a family and they will be providing them with some items that the, the family will buy and then also some items that the family will rent. And it tends to be that there's quite a practical division between the things that you're going to need to buy, like a coffin, for example, coffin yeah. plates and any of the items inside the coffin. Um, and probably the gloves as well um, and then the items which you will rent so for example it's very likely that you'll you'll rent a pool because the pool will just hang over the coffin then at the end the pool will be returned same with the the morning gowns as well quite often the little gowns that people wear and you see them wearing in the, the mid 1700s those items will be rented they'll be worn and then they'll be returned afterwards um, so the, effectively, the undertaker's convenience is that they provide a sort of one person contact with the the family member, the executor, maybe. Um, and they then sort of act as a middleman and organize those other trades behind the scenes. So they might have um, a warehouse of their own or they might depend on the skills of other individuals. Um, but they're kind of acting as a like a singular face. Um, and then organising all the messy bits behind. So from the family's perspective, it's potentially more convenient because they don't have to go to each different tradesperson and sort of source the items for themselves. They can go to one individual, okay. request a funeral and, and so forth. No, that makes a lot of sense, especially when you said about them being entrepreneurial. I can kind of see that a little bit, mm. a little bit clearer now. So would they have also have... Um, done any of the elements of organizing for so for example i'm thinking of transporting the body um you know potentially from home or or chapel of rest or wherever it is to to the actual burial site um and um yeah just that kind of general organization really yeah the the undertakers are, are primarily those individuals who will organize and manage the the transportation of the dead and um, and that's quite interesting in some cases, because there are areas here where, as we go through the 18th century, the experience of that transport changes. So when we think of um, particularly urban settings in, let's say, the early 18th century, it's quite likely that people are going to be buried quite close to where they live. They're going to be buried in, a, in an urban churchyard or maybe uh, within the body of the church if they're affluent enough. And it's probably likely that they could well be conveyed you know, on the shoulder, so to speak, sort of carried through mm -hmm. their, their local neighbourhood to a place of burial. Um, so the demand for hearses, which is much greater later on when we have the development of, of cemeteries, particularly sort of suburban cemeteries, um, is not so great at this point. And that means that 
from a hearse perspective, if we're thinking about the, the vehicle of the hearse, um, hearses are not as common as they would be in the, in the following century. Um, okay. So I, in my research, I, I encounter hearses, they tend to appear in the, the more affluent funerals. And it tends to be also that when you, in the mid century, certainly in the earlier century, you find that hearses are provided by another individual. So maybe a local um, stables or some tavern keeper who will have a hearse and um, in bath they had a, a hearse called the black work and the black work was owned by a tavern keeper um and he went out to the undertakers who needed it so they couldn't really afford to keep horses or or a hearse um it was more convenient for them to rent it as they needed to <laughs> i love some really, some really really cool examples though of particularly with the affluent funerals where an individual dies in say for example in london and then has to be transported all the way back to their their rural seat you know to be buried and some of those journeys are they are fantastic i mean it's all expenses that there are hearses there are coaches there are um various night stops on the way and on the night stops the individual will be kept in a in a specially decorated room in a, in a local inn and obviously that takes meticulous organization when you look through funeral bills you'll find that the undertaker in quite a lot of cases is being paid a lot to travel around and personally oversee those different stages of the process as well as well as usually a, a band of workers you have to go and sort of set everything up take it down and that sort of thing so. yeah i was just thinking that would be such a logistical nightmare Hmm. which you don't you, you don't necessarily know exactly how long it's going to take you to get to no. get somewhere if you're going by no. horse and carriage um for example um and trying to factor in you know the horses needing a rest and and or switching out and and those kind of complications as well yeah i can imagine yeah fair play <laughs> a logistical nightmare um so um so when we when we're talking about funerals they sound like incredibly grand affairs a lot of the time um did everybody have a funeral of sorts or were funerals very much exclusively for the um, the richer part of society? Everyone has a funeral. Um, from a historian's perspective, it's easier to, you're more likely to encounter lots of detail with the more affluent funerals because I suppose as with all aspects of history, they tend to leave a, a much sort of clearer signature on the historical record. You have lots of different organisational documents. You have lots of different sort of proofs that things have happened and contacts between people have happened. But when you look to the example of the common funeral, there, there's a very sort of clear common funeral. And you can start to see trends emerge whereby people um, start to require coffins. Um, so previous centuries people are being buried in a in a winding sheet or, or a shroud so when you see um sort of historical images of, of funerals and a burial you'll encounter usually or can be seemingly quite a macabre image of like a almost like a, a human wrapped up in it yeah. in a blanket. so and that's um that you know that that eventually does get replaced um, as we go through the 17th century coffins become and, and individual coffins as well become more common and you end up with a situation where there's almost a hierarchy of coffins and sometimes it's a hierarchy of coffins which one would imagine an individual is not always going to be aware of but it's more a case of knowing that you've got a slightly better coffin maybe with different um, construction techniques used so we we have simple coffins for example which are quite sort of austere maybe wooden and quite plain by some respects but they're very practical they they achieve their role they contain the dead and then on the higher levels you have coffins which um as i'm sure susie will be familiar with you know have things to to, to keep resurrectionists out of the coffin and various different techniques that are intended to sort of protect the dead body um, but then also other things which are purely decorative um, some fantastic examples of cloth covered coffins where they're either sort of red or black um, covered in material on the outside and usually decorated with lots of nails as well so you have these little shiny nail heads going all the way around in patterns and um, from archaeological examples there are lots of different types of patterns as well so these are all things that people would potentially see um, and some of those things are are a consequence of where you're going to be buried as well so if you're going to be put into a vault 
chances are that you're going to need a, a lead shell to contain your body. Um, and the the nature of your your coffin's construction is going to have to sort of mitigate the the risk of you maybe leaking out the side of the coffin or something gruesome like that. <laughs> I had to make it gruesome eventually, so that's uh... <laughs> um. So what do we know? Why people moved away from um from being wrapped in shrouds without a coffin to moving towards a, a, a wooden coffin? Was that was that to do with the wasn't anything to do with the taxation on um you know you had to you had to be buried in woolen wool shroud at one point didn't you yeah. um can't remember the dates but yeah i just i was just wondering kind of how it why it transitioned from one to the other there are lots of quite interesting arguments about how people came to that that situation and, and how and why the, the body came to be concealed within the coffin there are some assertions that maybe people were starting to to become a bit squeamish about contact with the dead and the, the dead were being sort of um sort of retreated from from public society and from polite society um so in some respects you can see evidence there of people's attempt to try and conceal the dead and to keep them away okay um, I, I think also there's a there is a sort of shift when it comes to some of the the techniques and the trades involved that on a simple level makes it more possible for people to have wooden coffins you know um, that's got to make it easier for people and particularly when you have the establishment of of coffin makers as well and people who actually have like large warehouses with coffins pre-made as well so these are not coffins where you have to go and request a coffin from the local carpenter these are sort of you know, children's sized coffins and adult sized coffins um, okay um, I just had a question come through actually from Helen who says, um, did some coffins have bells incorporated into them or is that a, is that a myth? Did they have bells incorporated? Um, yeah, in case you were uh, buried alive. Yeah, it's weird. I, I remember seeing a diagram of a coffin that had a bell, but I don't know if it was, it's, it's weird. I've never personally encountered an 18th century coffin with a, with like a warning bell system. Um, Although I am very conscious of people's concern about premature burial um, and the the alleged horrors of, of premature burial and the, the sort of proofs for it happening and the attempts to to sort of mitigate its happening, um, I haven't come across um, an account of a coffin with a bell in it though um, within the 18th century. Um, yeah, that's it, interesting. It, it's, a, it's quite a curious one though because it, one of the things I have encountered is people being very conscious of they're they're being buried within a coffin so there's one lady I, I whose will i was reading well funerary instructions rather than i was reading and she um was very particular that she should be kept in her coffin with the lid sealed um for several uh, days before she was buried and that when she was buried in her vault if it was possible she would like an arch constructed over the coffin so it was almost as if she was it, it rather gave conscious sort of thinking about being in this coffin think well I, I would like an arch just just in case I need to get out and, it's kind of, and it, just, it seemed really odd but it seemed like she had this she was almost preoccupied with this vision of being trapped within a coffin and it's it's interesting to think of people planning their funeral but also at the same time thinking about themselves as as a dead body as well and then, yeah, yeah I suppose that's really interesting because today um you know obviously we have we have more choice over what happens to our remains you know we can be buried or we can be cremated um I, you could donate your body to science i suppose and then i suppose if you were crazy rich um you yeah. you could potentially even have parts of you frozen <laughs> although i should think that's still exceptionally rare um but yeah it's 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 strange to think that when you thought about um when you thought about being uh, when you thought about dying and when you thought about your body the only option was to be buried i suppose um because cremation didn't come in until quite a lot later didn't it Yes, yeah, so in this in the eighteenth century, quite a bit of there's an awareness of cremation as a as a as a solution as a as a, as a possibility, but it, there's very much a hostility towards. In many ways, there's a, a quite prevalent hostility towards the dismemberment of the corpse yeah. in any way, um, which is interesting because there, there has been research which has sort of looked at the 
existence or lack thereof of any sort of um, religious basis for that. It's almost like something which people assume that you would need to be together on the last day without anyone actually ever fully saying that. So it's a, it's an interesting one because it has a it has a real hold on people's imagination, this idea of being intact. And um, certainly there, there are individuals within the 18th century who use embalming techniques as a way of embalming is still quite a limited practice in the 18th century um, there are some some famous examples of embalmers and some famous cases of people who've been embalmed but um, you don't see large numbers of people being embalmed um, yeah uh, yeah um yeah well I, I suppose that's similar today i mean you don't see large mm. numbers of people donating their bodies to science for example or um mm. Or being stuffed and put into a university hallway like um oh, oh, what's his name? Jeremy Bentham. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who's gone missing lots of times, hasn't he? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what were kind of if you were to rock up at an 18th century funeral for um your kind of average funeral, I suppose, so maybe people more of a kind of middling class, um, what what kind of things would you see? Um, and how would that compare to what we might see at a funeral uh, nowadays? I think probably the the most notable differences would be in the way that you maybe you came to be at the funeral. Um, in the the 18th century, there's the the sort of developing custom of funerary invitation, whereby you're invited, you're sort of requested to attend a funeral um, by a special card, usually quite a very decorated card that will specify the time and place that you have to attend. And I think when you go there also, the, the actual act of maybe receiving, particularly if it's a respectable funeral, um, maybe a sort of lower middling sort, you, you might expect to receive gifts. And those gifts may be of different levels, depending on your proximity to the deceased in life. So we almost have a, a sort of a recreation of your relationship with the dead person in material terms. So if you were very close to them, if you were maybe a family member or a close acquaintance, um, then you might get a nice pair of gloves, a scarf, a hat band to wear as well. And those are all mementos, but they're also very functional at the same time, because when you do eventually process, you know, when you process through the, the middle of the town with the body you're going to be doing so in quite a uniform way and you're going to be in a sort of a set space depending on where your relationship with the dead person puts you i think probably one of the things that would strike people most would be the fact that you're you're going to be buried probably um quite locally for most of the 18th century quite locally to where you're buried um, so there isn't going to be a cemetery necessarily until the very 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 end of the period I study there aren't really cemeteries at all so you're going to be buried in the parish churchyard um, or possibly within the body of the church um, again the closer to the the altar you are the closer to other um, areas of significance within that church you are you know the, the, the more status you're likely to be um, and I think for the most part, it's it's those small details, it's those things um, like being in a church and the, the expectation that you will be in a church for a funeral service, um, the decoration of those spaces as well. So both the bereaved household and the church are likely to be decorated in some way. Now, the, the scale of that decoration, again, is going to depend on how affluent the deceased was. Um, but in a lot of cases, that would be quite stark. I think we, we would be quite surprised by the amount of like candlesticks and black cloth and maybe escutcheons as well. You know, escutcheons are one of those things that you don't really... You don't What's really a escutcheon? Uh, escutcheon is a sort of... Um, they vary in size and material, but generally they're a sort of like a little uh, shield-shaped device that has a, a picture or some kind of heraldry or a type of, or an imitation okay. of heraldry. Um, and they, because they appear in so many different sort of materials, they can be everywhere. So they might be on the walls of the bereaved household. They might be placed on the coffin as well. Um, makes them a bit of a target when it comes to going through an urban setting. People like to poach them and grab them off the, the coffin as it goes by. Um, so there were um, all these, these small things that maybe we wouldn't be used to seeing. The mutes, for example, um, my beloved mutes. 
Um, out the way. Uh, mutes on the doors of, of the bereaved household, there to greet you, uh, maybe not to make eye contact with you, and possibly to, to shed a tear. There, there are suggestions that you know, a good mute can shed a tear and look very sad and dour. Um, okay. Hmm. Okay. Um, so you wouldn't have hired like wailing women. Um, <laughs> so going much further back. <laughs> I've never encountered wailing women um, at native century, <laughs> but someone did mention them before. This idea of having very sort of like aggressively mourning um, characters at funerals, um, but for the most part, it seems like the the funerals I've I've studied are, are sort of typified by a sort of mournful, a very deliberate mournful silence, and then obviously the the sound of the muffled church bells as well. It's a very sort of uh, gloomy landscape they're attempting to create. And it's one way you your expectations are kind of meant to guide you from one stage to the next. So you, you expect these things, you expect these experiences and achieving them is how you get a good funeral. Okay. There's something that sounds so recognizably British about that, and I don't know if that's just me. <laughs> yeah. Um I just had an interesting question pop up from Robert actually, who says, um, did undertakers participate in reburials, for example, uh, where a body has to be reburied in unconsecrated ground? Mm. Mm. It makes me wonder whether Robert's got a case in his family history. Because <laughs> no, that sounds interesting, really interesting I've question. Not come that, but I could imagine, whilst I've not come across that, I would imagine that they probably could and would because there, there is a in many ways there's a there's a freedom to the undertaker and what the undertaker does that's kind of dictated by what they will allow themselves to do which is why undertaker people can be quite suspicious towards undertakers because they are um guided by their own um their own sort of their own moral compass if you like things which people might find detestable or uncomfortable they can decide are okay and yeah, Robert's just mentioned, um, like, for example, suicide. That's um, what he was thinking of. Um, okay. Um, so, and um, Susie as well has just, like, kind of preempted my next question, actually, which was when you were talking about funeral symbols um, mm. and some of the recognisable symbols, one of the first things that came to my mind was um, was lilies. I always associate mm. lilies with funerals uh, and with death in general. And Susie wanted to know... Um, when did flowers start to be put on top of uh, coffins, for example, wreaths or sheaf or the full floral arrangements, for example? So flowers, flowers are an interesting one because you do come across flowers in folk traditions um, appear um, in funerals, um, particularly in the, there are these delightful um, crowns that are made to um, commemorate um, people who've died as, you know, who died outside of marriage, maidens garlands. And they, um, they incorporate some very, some very interesting things like flowers and other materials. And they are sometimes hung in churches as well, which would be an early example of, of flowers within a, a funerary setting. Um, in terms of flowers on the coffin, flowers don't really, in the 18th century, I haven't really encountered flowers on the coffin. Other things go on the coffin. And I suppose when they stop being on the coffin, that's probably when flowers start to come along. And actually, one, one really good example I can think of, which I suppose the more I think about it, it's probably not as totally true as, as, as I imagine it would be. But um, one thing you do encounter a lot of on top of coffins in the, the idealized 18th century funeral um, are ostrich feathers and sort of plumes of ostrich feathers you tend to see them placed in much the same way that we would traditionally place flowers nowadays so on top of the coffin in usually like three little sets and sitting on top of the pool um, and those plumes would be everywhere so they, they, might, they would also be on the heads of the horses they would probably be um, carried by some people on staves as well, like mutes. Um, they might have little sort of plumes as well. And, and I was just going to say, is that because purely because they're they're black and white? Do you think, or is there any particular reason why ostrich feathers, mm -hmm. other than other than potentially showing off? <laughs> well, yeah, this is the thing. I mean, particularly within within parts of the 18th century, ostrich feathers are still sort of acquired via wild ostriches as well. So there is a point where ostrich farming develops and ostrich farming for the purpose of ostrich plumes changes the landscape slightly because it gives you lots of opportunities to provide more 
plumes and there, there are some re there's some interesting research out there into the development of ostrich farms and their impact on the ostrich business um but it, it's it's really interesting because when you think of obviously what an ostrich plume lends to a funeral um you do have those sort of really impressive black or white plumes and those are the sort of core colors of the funeral as well so if we think of um if we just think of one of these mutes for example dr the wrong way one of these mutes for example pointing the wrong way <laughs> um, the, the mute here is wearing I don't know, there we go he's wearing a hat a hat band all the way up there and also uh, a scarf which is worn across the body in a hoop in this particular instance he's wearing a white one which gives an indication that it's uh, an unmarried man or woman or possibly a child's funeral um if it was a married man he's chances are he'll be or a married woman he'll be wearing a, a black scarf and a black hat band as well um, so there you have that sort of white black distinction it's quite useful with with ostrich plumes but at the same time there's also they're also quite convenient because they're they're quite large and they're quite sort of impactful um, i have come across other kinds of bird feathers um, like dyed black bird feathers um, which I suppose serve the same role, but would definitely have been less impressive, I would say, um, as compared with sort of big fashionable ostrich plumes. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it has it because people people when people think about um undertakers and when they when they mock the undertakers, which is another one of my sort of favourite subjects about how people lampoon the undertakers in, in their community. Um Mr. Ostrich is a name that sort of goes around so people start to call um fictional undertakers you know mr ostrich or ostrich because that's the thing that's almost synonymous with the trade you know these ostrich feathers um so it's it, it, it's weird but it's it is interesting how they do seem to sort of perform that flowerly role um before yeah that. that is really interesting so um, you were talking there about um people mocking undertakers and yeah. I, i've got to i've got to ask you why, why were people mocking undertakers and and how so it, some people will have, will, have, will have encountered my my sort of relationship with with the the characterization of, of of undertakers before but it's it's a really fun subject and it's it's interesting because it in the 18th century there was a tendency to poke fun at things that people took really seriously but also people who stepped above their station and so with the undertaker you have a really good example of an individual who is kind of helping people to to sort of outstep their station but at the same time is also kind of making his own place in the world and has developed his own language and his own sort of codes of, of business and um those things get sort of parodied and mocked. So we start to see the emergence of uh, quite throwaway characters. You know, very, they don't tend to, they don't have whole plays or whole um, things named after them. They appear as like little stock characters. And these fictional stock undertakers, um, they tend to have really hilarious names. So you have Mr. Coffin, Mr. Sable, uh, Mr. Grimley. Um, Mr. Mr. Plume again, um, Mr. C's corpse, and these are all little words that kind of um, th they reveal a lexicon that people had for talking about undertakers in a pejorative way. You know, poking fun at them, calling them death hunters, calling them ravens, um, trying to sort of mock them for the way that essentially they benefited from death and okay. this underlying awkwardness and this as uncomfortableness with the fact that these individuals trade in death you know they when when we suffer and when we feel sad they get wealthy and there's it's it's quite a it really does get played upon so you end up with undertakers who are uh, incredibly upset and, and deeply sad that someone has survived um, undertakers <laughs> right to, to bury the living you know so they'll, they'll go up to an individual and say so would you would you terribly mind if i could um if i could bury you and of course people are outraged you know they're, they're, they're sort of you, know, you can't bury me so i'll i'll, I'll put you in the grave and, and such forth um so there, there is a real there's a there's an attempt to mock it but at the same time it's what's interesting from a from a historian of the undertaker's perspective is that here you have um something which shows people's knowledge of, of the trade because obviously you can't mock these people if folk don't know who they are so people yeah. must 
undertake. They must have these these anxieties and these suspicions in their mind. They must have these um, these prejudices locked in, if you like. So th those things are really interesting, and it kind of it gives us um, it sort of teases a glimpse into the mind of the undertaker's customers. On the one hand, we know from from the records and from the success of the trade that these people were more than happy to use undertakers but in the parody of undertakers we see an attempt to sort of let out some of this this awkwardness and this discomfort with you know what they do and, and sure. um, the squeamishness about what they what they might do when the doors are closed and um i think i, th I think we still get that today don't we yeah that makes total sense and am i right in thinking that undertakers it quite often was a profession that would pass down in family so you get generations mm. and generations of the same family you know and still do today you know under, you do. You undertaking do. yeah yeah, yeah. so okay. you, what you find is that you 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 can usually newspapers are quite good for actually because you if you if you're diligent enough and you sort of go at it you can find the point where one undertaker dies and then another family member sort of takes over the business does that sort of obligatory step of announcing themselves you know i'm taking over the, the, the business and i'd like to acquaint all my father's friends that you know i'll provide them with the the same services and the same diligence that, that he did and that's quite interesting because sometimes that transition isn't perfect there's a sort yeah. of rock to it because what happens sometimes is that in addition to having family members who who follow after each other you may also have members of the undertaker's company who try to branch out on their own or who are entrusted with the business when the undertaker dies and then you end up with these um it's a bit like a family tree of undertakers i suppose you have these awkward branches of one individual telling everyone that you know i was the foreman under this undertaker and i was trusted with him for many years of good service and i acquaint all of his customers to come to me at the same time you have a family member who's taken over and says well actually i'm the son of the previous undertaker <laughs> i also wish to entreat myself and some of though you can through the very sort of uh, restrained language of, of newspaper advertising at the time you can see these struggles between family members so two sons for example who are squabbling over uh the business of their father mm. in some cases um as i've said before you, you might have a, a business member who kind of goes against the remaining family members and when you have particularly competitive urban markets as well it's not too hard for those individuals all to coexist so you end up with these um these very sort of complicated I tried to, to map it once for Bath. I had lines <laughs> going in various different directions. This person was worked for this person at this time, and then he went off on his own, and his son took over. But then this person came. <laughs> so it, it, it's confusing, but it shows that you know when when the market's there, there's an opportunity to be had. And you do also you find uh, widows who take over their husbands. I was just about to ask actually. Do yeah. you, you mean you say sons? Do you do you have um do you have female undertakers or or what role do women play within this kind of undertaking business so I've, I've encountered a few really good examples of of widows who take over their husband's businesses and run the husband's business uh for many years um sometimes they do hand the business over to a, a younger like a son who is too young to take over when when the husband dies and in some cases they do continue it on until they they give up the business or specialize in a different path because often that's one thing you find with undertaking businesses is sometimes they don't always succeed um and in that particular instance you may have an undertaker who she might decide to to not follow that line anymore and moves off into another field and um that happens whether it's men or women really is you find that same sure. branching of the business but yeah you do find some some really good examples of of um widows who who take over their husband's businesses and run them i suppose because essentially they've got all the knowledge you know they know how the knowledge is the trusted currency here with the undertaker you want something as a customer much as we do today i suppose you know you go to someone you can trust you go to someone who you can rely on and that sort of that same sense of, of trust and expectation um exists or at least seems to exist within the 18th century in terms of 
Um, the people whose businesses do well are the people who can really trade on on that success. Um, and it, it's it's really interesting because even within a within a reasonably small city or a small like a medium sized town, you can start to see by the end of the eighteenth century the paths that various different businesses have taken from those early beginnings to the first examples of people who are becoming what I would call sole undertakers. So people who are just you know, trading as an undertaker. And those are really interesting because those, those individuals tend to be the people who have the big warehouse that rents out items to other funeral uh, businesses as well. Okay, so They're the real success stories and you tend to get a few of those within a society. Okay. And you mentioned there about um, uh, the wearing of the white sash for children, and that Mm. just made me think, were children's funerals um, quite different or quite, uh, were they just as much as a big affair as an an adult elite that died? Or how did they um, compare? So children's, depending on the the affluence of their parents, children's funerals sure. could be quite. Um, they they could be reasonably ostentatious occasions. Um, you find mourning rings, for example, for children who were maybe several months old, um, and that's obviously going to be a case of the family having enough money to afford those items and then exchange those items as as mementos to to close family members. Um, children's coffins are something which um, are made and produced uh, in stock by lots of coffin um, coffin makers and coffin making warehouses as well. So there is an expectation of you know what a child's funeral should consist of, okay. and um, it does tend to follow those same patterns of, of sort of wealth dictating what an individual can can have at their funeral. Okay. Uh, and I suppose it's similar, similar, really, a similar question, but I was just kind of thinking about some of the different symbols. So I know that we mentioned about mm. flowers, but I was also thinking about um, different symbols that you get on greystones mm. and um, I'm trying to think of some other, so, and, and little traditions as well, like uh, like throwing soil on a coffin. Mm. Um, and I just wonder whether um, you could talk a little bit about when some of those traditions came in or some of the some of the more interesting ones that you've come across really i think for me that one of the really interesting things is that that sort of the, the visual language of death in the 18th century so we go from what by modern standards we would probably regard as a, like a very delightfully macabre vision of death where death the the, the visual sort of depiction of death is one very literal grave sites um picks spades skulls bones sometimes broken bones as well um the things that that with the memento mori tradition okay Um, i was gonna say is that when you'd get like um uh, old man time and um you know the scythe and the, the grim reaper that kind of thing Okay. Yeah, you 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 will often see um, time on one side with his with his forelock and his his side, and then on the other side you'll have death as the the king of terrors essentially. So usually, not exclusively, but death sometimes with with wings, almost like an angel, but like a skeleton okay. with wings. Sometimes death without wings, um, and then sometimes death with a crown as well. Sometimes they really like to sort of force that king of terrors image with it with a nice crown, and you see that that sort of language of memento mori trying to encourage people to remember their own mortality it it turns death into a very didactic thing these are meant to be things that sort of poke at you and remind you that you know as as the skeleton is now so will you be in the future so it's kind of imploring you to use that funeral as or that counter with death as an opportunity to to learn and prepare for your own end so that tends to be very practical very sort of vivid and macabre um from a modern perspective it looks really ghoulish you know (laughs) not the sort of thing you would expect to be invited to a funeral now and have like a a skeleton there and and I think what I found it quite interesting about that is in a time when mortality, when mm. compared to today, death feels like it was everywhere. <laughs> when you mm. look back, I mean, 
you look back at, I mean, when I look back at my ancestors, you know, you see many of their children dying or my ancestors dying young themselves, being married multiple times, widowed, you know, it feels like death is um, such a daily part of their lives, mm-hmm. um, especially the earlier back you go, that it almost seems surprising that that you'd have um, an image that kind of constantly reminds you of your own mortality because you think, yeah. why would you need that? Because you're you're constantly reminded by your own mortality anyway yeah. by the fact that all these people are dying around you. So it's, it's I always find that quite an interesting juxtaposition, I suppose. Yeah, and it is interesting as as we go as uh, as we move forward through time as we we get closer, particularly through the 18th century, you see those those memento mori elements start to fade and it's quite a gradual process so by the end of the 18th century it's not unheard of to encounter uh, an impressive skeleton embodying death you know representing death usually with a great big sort of dart uh, anyone who's seen any of my my twitter feed will be familiar with, with this yeah. it's, it's everywhere there's lots of lots of skeletons on things um but you do find a sort of softening of that of that language, of that visual language of death, and a move towards an imagery of death which is more, I suppose, more typically classical. Has things like urns, plinths, maybe a, a, a woman in mourning, sort of leaning on on an urn, possibly. Uh, and it, it's a far softer, it's a far more comforting image of death. It's a it's a more peaceful, more sort of quieter vision of of death. Uh, almost as a some people have suggested almost as a, a sleep rather than and then an end or yeah do you think do you think it starts to be a kind of almost like a romanticization of death mm. um at times yeah it, it it does seem to move away from the the very sort of practical very temporal um vision of death that we get in the memento mori so in the memento mori you tend to be thinking about what death looks like here Whereas in the the later imagery, it's almost like a vision of you know what what the other side might be like a very peaceful vision, and you see that at various different levels of the the, sort of the visual encounter with death. So probably the best example if you've ever encountered um, the funeral invitations or the trade cards that undertakers produce, um, you can really chart the progression from sort of lots of skeletons to urns and also with some of the undertaker's trade materials there's a real shift towards actually talking about what the undertaker does and showing hearses in action um, hearses going through the streets hearses going out into the countryside Um, a vision of death which really takes it away from the the horror maybe of of some of the the original images of, of death in the memento more so that's probably um one of the the most striking visual shifts and you you see it in the um in churchyards too i mean if you're sadly there aren't many churchyards around me that where the 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 stones have survived they tend to all melt the the details have have all gone but there are some really cracking examples of um memento mori headstones where you've got that sort of skull maybe a skull with wings uh, an hourglass sometimes skeleton figures standing on the on the the tombstone or on that the gravestone and those examples are almost the same as the things you'll encounter on the rings or in the funeral invitations they're very vivid striking reminders by the end of that period a lot of the imagery is is far softer it's maybe more in some cases it's more just very typically classical you know they're using lots of little visual touches it's architecturally some of these things are quite impressive they might have a bit more about the deceased person on them but they don't have as many reminders about our sort of shared end if you like so um, yeah and in terms of um uh the deceased themselves did um I was just so, I don't know why it sprang into my mind, but I was just thinking about how, especially in America and I think Ireland to a certain degree, you've got much more of a, a tradition of going to view a body in a coffin mm. and kind of the open coffin kind of idea. Um, whereas I, I don't, I mean, it might just be me, but I don't think that's quite so prevalent in England and Wales. I'm not sure about Scotland, but I just, yeah, I just was wondering um, whether that's something that's changed over time or whether that's kind of always been, um, where the funerals were always relatively quick and um, bodies less visible, I guess. If that makes sense. Sorry, that was such a rambling question. 
it's interesting because in in the 18th century certainly from 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 visual examples from the 18th century we do see bodies being presented in coffins usually in the the dead person's household in what i would call the bereaved household we have a, a coffin that might be open and the coffin will be open to be viewed by uh, family members and friends before the the funeral um like funeral procession commences um, and it will sometimes be watched by individuals as well who will remain there with the coffin and with the person. Um, that serves a double purpose. Obviously, it's a sort of vigil, but at the same time, it also gives you an opportunity to be doubly sure that the person actually hasn't looked like dead, essentially. Um, yeah, it's interesting what people, what what gives different people comfort. So I know when um, uh, my partner's um, father died there he's Irish and, and they had the body in the house for um I think it was at least one night and he stayed with his father and he mm. he found that quite comforting um I found it a little bit harder to kind of um understand because it's not something that I've had it done in my family so it was almost like a mm. tradition in his family um but yeah he did take quite quite a lot of comfort out of just seeing his father one last one last time and being with him overnight so I, I guess the that element would have been there in the past as well different people finding comfort in different practices and um, traditions and it really does it also has a very sort of material effect on the way that the the, the shroud develops you know, so the english shroud moves from being that winding sheet that we talked about at the beginning sort of a you know, person wrapped up in um mm. i actually did that was i back in my undergraduate i did a a mock 17th century funeral where we, we buried a teddy bear with wrapped up in a winding sheet, um, which always comes back to surprise me from that. Um, but um, yeah, you, you move from that towards something which is far more geared to sort of show someone's face when they're in the coffin. Um, often you'll have like a little blanket or a, a cloth within the coffin that covers the rest of the person's body, and that could be pinned to the side of the coffin to give the impression of like a quilt lying over the top of them okay and that kind of allows them to be viewed within the coffin without it being a too of a you know too much of a an uncomfortable or a ghoulish experience at the same time um which is also i suppose useful because people at that time when you see the little images of people at funeral events they might be stood around a coffin sometimes open sometimes closed um the coffin if it's closed might also have the pool on top by that stage and those individuals will be taking drinks usually or being offered um little um sweetmeats together right it's not sweetmeats not sweetbreads um okay. and often we'll trace you'll have a little, few little serving people going around offering drinks to people maybe with a jug and those people will be taking a few sort of drinks and, and a few things before they go off on the funeral but they might also be carrying little sprigs of rosemary, which obviously just, you know, aids the scent in the room, just makes things a bit more pleasant. And um, and so it's, it's small touches like that, you know, and those things are really cool to see in, in visual examples, because often those visual examples are quite simplistic and they often represent an ideal rather than the normality for people. Uh, but it's those small little touches that show you, you know, what it would be like to be at one of those, those funerals. And, um there are some things that are similar to us and that we can recognize and then there are some things which seem a bit weird as well at the same time okay <laughs> <laughs> i i am um, uh, i'll just um i'll just notice the time so i just wanted to say to anyone if you do have any more uh, questions please do feel free to pop on and i'll 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 ask them before dan and i have to wrap up but um uh one thing that just popped into my mind again whilst you were talking and talking about drinks and things was um was the tradition of the wake and um whether that's got a, a long tradition or whether that's a fairly new phenomena or so you do encounter the the eating at funerals is is a really interesting and certainly a quite fascinatingly deep subject um um that can go you, know, you can study food at funerals and the purpose and meaning of food whether it's a spiritual purpose or a social purpose um all the way from sort of medieval examples of funeral feasts all the way to um the the present and you know the sort of the very practical reality of cucumber sandwiches and tea and i think ham sandwiches i mean 
it, it holds no interest in me. I'm, I'm, I'm a vegan, but um, ham sandwiches seem to have a real sway over people at funerals. <laughs> Um, but in the 18th century, you do come across examples of things like funeral biscuits, which are specially made biscuits that are, are very popular. And they continue to be popular for a long time. And in some examples, the kinds of funerary biscuit have, have pre-existed the 18th century as well. Uh, but the uh, food often falls within that same niche of, of gift giving as well. So if you go to a funeral, you you might expect if it's an affluent funeral to be reasonably well dined to you know to have things to eat um, where it changes in some respects is the the giving of large amounts of food to the poor and the the earlier communal traditions of giving large amounts of food in feast form to the poor um, does decrease somewhat um, it tends to be that where gifts of food are given they're given away from the funeral in another place so they might be a, an act of charity but it's not sort of on site so to speak okay that's interesting i've, I've certainly seen um off-site mm. mentioned in newspapers you know it will say so-and-so died and therefore they're they're paying for all the school children or all the village to have meat or something mm. you know been yeah. off-site um Helen has just asked another great question, which I was um, going to lead into as well, if I can find my mm -hmm. mouse. Oh, there it is, disappeared. Um, so Helen was just wondering whether you had any um, books available. And I was just going to say as well, where can people go to find out a bit more information about um, how their ancestors may have buried their dead and, and what kind of customs and practices they would have um, taken part in? So in terms of uh, in terms of my own efforts, I'm I'm currently working on a monograph about um, about fictional representations of undertakers in the 18th century. So that will be ready. Optimistically, that should be ready within a year's time. Um, I'm sort of drawing all of those pieces together excitedly, and that's going to be my first sort of big thing. So um, it's coming, and there's lots of work going into it. Um, and once it's done, it should be a reasonably good account of how undertakers are represented fictionally. In terms of the real experience, um, from a sort of broad historical perspective, um, I would recommend anything by uh, Dr. Julian Nitton. Um, so if you, you look out there for any, any of the, the funerary writings by Dr. Julian Nitton, they're, they're really interesting. They're really good introduction but there's a lot of depth in them as well so if you want to sort of dig deeper and think about the the common funeral in england all the way from the medieval to the present um you know there's lots of there's lots of stuff there to read and also claire gittings as well claire gittings wrote about the the 17th century and in terms of the funerals of both the high and the low in the 17th century um, they're very accessible books and they're really they're quite interesting you can dip into certain bits of them if you have a particular interest like burial or coffins or that sort of thing so um, i would recommend them both highly um, if anyone wants to to read up on that yeah okay great and I'll, I'll make sure um this video and the podcast version will have an accompanying blog post page which will probably be um www.genealogystories.co.uk and then uh, slash probably Dan O'Brien. So so probably something really easy, though I will share that and um, I'll make sure that all the resources are on there. Um, and where can people find you on Twitter, Dan, if they want to come and follow you? Uh, on Twitter, I'm at, at Dr. Dan underscore O. Okay. So Dr. Dan okay. underscore, the underscore is the tricky bit, but it was the easiest. <laughs> <laughs> it looked like minus zero otherwise. So it's uh, Dr. Dan underscore O. Okay, uh, great. And um, that's me. I'm, it's, I'm, when you find me, you'll know it because there's there's lots of um, there's lots of this stuff there. There's <laughs> daily tweets about funerary things. Okay, <laughs> I've just had one more question to sneak in. Actually, it's such a good one. Do you mind oh. if I sneak it in? That's from, okay, um, from Jane, who I who I know it will be quite early in the morning where she is. So um, Jane says, presumably, the practice of pool bearing was as much practical as ceremonial which yeah that would make sense yeah yeah so you have with with bearing the coffin you in the 18th century parlance you can have two different kinds so you have people who are what referred to as the pool bearers and they support the pool so at a really ostentatious funeral they walk 
on the outside of the coffin. And they will basically just hold the pall, so like the, the fringe of the pall. And then you have what are called underbearers. Now, we would call underbearers pallbearers nowadays. This is where the 18th century people okay. have developed a whole secondary thing. Now, the underbearers actually carry the coffin, so they're underneath the pall. So you've got the, they're sort of, they're mostly hidden from view, um, which again it affords them status because they're so close to the deceased, but they are performing that very real duty of like carrying the, the heft of the coffin. Um, so quite often in the larger funerals, um, as a charitable act, those individuals might be charity recipients. So they might be given a special suit of clothes and they might be given like um, some sort of very kind of pay of some kind in order to bear the coffin of the deceased. So they will, usually in teams of six or eight, they will carry the coffin. Um, But unfortunately, the sort of the heads of them will be mostly obscured. So you you might have the the friends might be carrying, the, might be holding the, like the fringe of the pool in a nice public, very visible position, and then the poor underbearers will be underneath doing all the hard work. Um, but obviously that depends, again, if you, funerals where there's less money to go around, uh, you'll probably just have people carrying the coffin, and yeah, they are doing some very heavy practical work there. Um, particularly because a lot of these coffins are, are real wooden coffins as well, and there's a lot of weight in the wooden coffin. Um, yeah okay um and i had one that i think i think um you might have to go and look up and i I, a little mini challenge for you for afterwards was and i think i mentioned it before and i chatted to you so i was told that dalmatians Dalmatians. were bred to nip the heels of the horses on um horses that were carrying you know a hearse Mm. um and so that dalmatians were, were bred for funeral traditions in like the Victorian era, I think. So a bit later than than your your period of interest. But um, I have no idea whether it's an urban myth or not. So if you could find out for me, I'd be really I'm grateful. I'm going to have to go and research this one. Yeah. It, it's, a challenge I, it's a challenge I gladly accept. Um, yeah, it was one of those things that my mum yeah. told me. So it, it, it could be completely made up yeah. or it could be one of her fantastic nuggets of history reading. Yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you can see the, the thinking there. Yeah, yeah, no, and she's she's one of these people that's always got she reads a lot, so she does kind of collect little nuggets that she can't remember where they came from. But then sometimes they've got like a little bit muddled, like like we all do that you read mm-hmm. something like three years ago and you're not yeah. it's not your expertise, and so you remember bits of it and then you kind of naturally <laughs> embellish it in your own mind. <laughs> so, so so it could be one of those as well. So yeah, it's a little challenge for you. But um thank you so much for coming and talking to me. I've really enjoyed it. And there's just to show you there's a there's lots of comments here saying um saying thank you. So we've got um Helen saying she looks forward to your book and we've got Ali here saying thank you um because she found it so informative and enjoyable. And um I have had a comment or two from Susie about Susie Lennox, who um mm. did mention as well that blacksmiths were involved in more safes and had you come across any in your research. But I know we're a little bit shy of time, so um perhaps we can um tweet a few few tweets Susie's way and if, if anyone's watching and they're wondering why I'm mentioning Susie it's because I, I also did an interview with Susie about um, resurrectionists and body snatching so the, the the two tie in and it was Susie who introduced me to Dan so <laughs> big thank you to Susie <laughs> but yeah thank you ever so much for joining me I, I probably could have talked to you for another hour to be honest about all the different traditions it was really interesting um, and um yeah, if anyone has any questions for me or Dan, please do come find us on Twitter. But, yeah. <laughs> Thanks very much. That's right. Thank you all for coming and thank you all for listening as well. It's, um, it's really good. I, I very much enjoy talking about this. So it's, um, it's good to be given any opportunity to. <laughs> we'll have to have you back. And um, yeah, good night, everyone. <laughs>